Today on Emerge, I'm speaking with Peter Park. Peter and I have been friends for many years, and in this conversation, which takes place at the Monastic Academy in Vermont, we talk about the importance of monastic training and its relevance to the world today, the relationship between community, authentic relating, and deep contemplative practice, the need to shift from a game in which there are winners and losers to a game in which everybody has the opportunity to win, as well as the reality of how happiness is actually achieved in a lifetime and the ways in which we mistakenly seek after happiness only to be disappointed. If you're enjoying Emerge, uh, I invite you to offer your support. There are two primary ways you can do that. Uh, The first is through making a reoccurring donation to the podcast by going to anchor.fm slash emerge and clicking on the button that is the one that looks like it's the one you click on for that kind of thing, uh, or by clicking on the link in the show notes. The other way you can support the podcast is by leaving a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast surface allows you to leave reviews that you use. Um, Leaving a review really, really, really helps other people discover these conversations. And so if you think that they are of value, you can help them make a deeper, wider impact by leaving a review. Okay. Please enjoy this episode of Emerge with Peter Park. All right. Um, so welcome back to Emerge. Uh, my guest today is my good friend, Peter Park. Um, I'm actually, we're actually here at the Monastic Academy. As I sit here in the Monastic Academy tea room, I'm gazing out into the mountains of Vermont. Are these a particular mountain range? They are. Do you... <laughs> I believe a J Peak is over there somewhere. J Peak? We're facing north. Well, suffice to say, it's, it's, it's very beautiful. It's winter. It's very snowy. And we're in a, a beautiful and quite cozy uh, albeit sometimes drafty, monastery. Um, and uh, Peter, how long have you been here training? Uh, total time has been almost three and a half years. I started June 20th, 2015. 2015, okay. Yeah. And uh, you, know, you and I met, I think, originally at the Buddhist Geeks conference. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah you were the, I think you were the volunteer, mm-hmm. like, Master of volunteers, weren't you? No, I volunteered two years in a row. The first year I was the green room ninja. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think that was 2012. And then uh, then the following year, I just helped out for registration. Uh Actually, I think think Emily gave me her key, actually, to close the shop and open the doors each morning. Yeah, Yeah, well, you you appear as a very trustworthy person. (laughs) It's very surprising. <laughs> I, mean, I remember when we were like preparing for the conference. I was working at Buddhist Geeks at the time. We were preparing for the conference, and uh, Kelly Sosan Bearer, who was like in charge of producing it, mm. I think read your application and was like, 
I think this person is going to be the you know in charge of the volunteers. He's like he seems very trustworthy looking right. at his application. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I give off that impression. I hope, yeah. I, hope I live up to it. But, yeah, yeah. And so um, you know, we both have this shared interest in, I, or I guess shared sort of cultural exposure to Buddhist geeks. Mm -hmm. For me, that was a very significant sort of media outlet. I think mm -hmm. for you too. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you chose to at the time you were living in a. RV, yeah, right? right? Drive across the country and, and attend yeah. the conference. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. That was a very pivotal moment in my mid-20s. That was uh, the first major uh, trip west I'd done off the RV. And uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a trip. And I was, <laughs> it gave me a good excuse to go west. I was like, well, I need to go west because I'm going to this conference. So yeah, that was really nice. Yeah, and then so then we kind of you know kept in touch a little bit after that, mm -hmm. and that was in whatever twenty thirteen. Yeah, like that. and I came and joined the Center for Mindful Learning, what's now known as the Monastic Academy, mm -hmm. in twenty fourteen, I think, or twenty fifteen, and, and mm -hmm. stayed here for two years. And during that period. Uh, I somehow persuaded you or, you know, in talking with me, yeah. you decided to come. I think I was your conduit. Yeah, definitely. Into here. Okay. Definitely. And so um, maybe you can just describe for folks who are listening and don't know, like, what is this place? Yeah. So the Monastic Academy, the full name is Monastic Academy for the Preservation of Life on Earth or Maple. It's very apropos since we're in Vermont. Uh, is sort of what we call a modern monastery that these days I'm trying to switch to a meta-modern monastery where we both train really deeply in the classical, traditional awakening side, having real genuine spiritual insight, of going beyond ourselves. And we also combine that with what we call the responsibility side or the service side of how to show up in the world, uh, cultivate power, learn how to wield power skillfully, lovingly, wisely, so that we can address the uh, many challenges on the planet. Uh, and in most circles, whether nonprofits or spiritual communities, I've found that people often focus on the wisdom, the love, or the power side. So there's a lot of powerful people lacking in wisdom or love, and a lot of people doing spiritual pursuits that are like allergic to touching money or uh, having power, which uh, it's definitely uh, makes sense, but I think these days we really need people that can do all three sides. Mm -hmm. um, I'd also say it's similar, actually, because I remember when we first met, or maybe the second year we met, yeah. one of the things I remember we bonded over a lot was that we were both into Buddhism, but we weren't like, we weren't like traditional gun-ho about it, and we recognized that there were other facets that we're also really interested in like service and politics and philosophy and mm -hmm. most importantly i think like body awareness and like emotions mm -hmm. and uh i was like oh good there's someone else that gets it. it's <laughs> not just be a really good buddhist which is includes all the facets of life so uh, mm -hmm. and i like to think that this is a place where we also do that um, so yeah uh, the big vision is that we want to obviously uh, use the training we do here to then help the world so that there's no division between uh, the training and being of service. And uh, to give a 
to give folks who are listening a sense for, you know, what life is like here, um, what, what's, your, what's your kind of daily schedule and rough strokes? And then um, maybe you could describe a retreat schedule uh, so, so, and, and what the frequency of that is. Totally. Uh, yeah, so we call ourselves the Monastic Academy because we follow a very monastic schedule as well as values and training, uh, which includes each day uh, starting being seated and ready to start meditation at 4.40 a.m. And then we do chanting uh, for about 45 minutes or so uh, in different languages to sort of reprogram our minds with positive ethical values and also cultivate energy and um, concentration. Uh, we do an hour of meditation in the morning. These are our non-retreat weeks, the normal work weeks. Uh, so that's about 6.30 to 7, sorry, 5.30 to 6.30 we're doing meditation. 6.30 to 7.30 we have a exercise movement period where we're getting back into our bodies and doing physical exercise and everyone does their own thing, whether it's Tai Chi or yoga, weightlifting, uh, running, whatever fits for them. Uh, we have a silent breakfast at 735. Uh, and then around 815 or so, uh, we start our work period, our responsibility period, where the residents run the entire center, everything from cutting the grass and shoveling snow to fundraising, bookkeeping, um, just everything, resident recruitment and everything that's involved in running a nonprofit and a residential center. Um, then we have lunch around one o'clock. Uh, sometimes we have a guided lunch where we might go focus on a specific topic like global warming or AI safety or uh, any number of topics. And then we have a short chore period after lunch where we're cleaning up the building. Uh, the residents get about two and a half hours of uh, personal time each day to do their laundry, uh, take care of themselves, call their folks. And then the evening, depending on the day, uh, we'll either do a solid three-hour chunk of meditation mm. or we'll break it up into uh, more work or and then an hour and a half of meditation. And some days we'll do workshops and dharma talks or uh, this practice of circling we do once a week. But we always end each day with about an hour and a half of uh, silent meditation period and then chanting, uh, compassion chanting at the evening. So we close out the schedule uh, usually by nine o'clock. And uh, in the morning and evening, if there's a teacher available right now, which is me, uh, there's interview uh, sessions, one-on-one -on -one interview sessions during those meditation periods to get feedback and guidance. And, and then once every, is it once every month still that you do a, a completely silent retreat? Right. So once a month uh, for a week, uh, we do a silent meditation retreat. Some months are a little bit different. Like in the summer, we do a vision quest. Uh, usually once a year, we do a circling immersion retreat. Mm -hmm. But normally, we do a completely silent uh, meditation retreat. Uh, that's uh, where we really focus on the awakening side and go really deep into... Uh, the spiritual side of the practice. And, and, and then you're, in that case, you're meditating 12 hours a day at least. Right. Yeah. So then we start at 4.30 <laughs> and we end around, uh, the formal schedule ends around 10, although some people often will keep going past 10. And yeah, and, that, and that's a pretty straightforward schedule. That's just 
meditate, eat, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <I> <laughs> sleep really, a little bit. Yeah. Eating is even optional. Really, so it's basically chant, sit, eat, sit, yeah. eat, sit, chant. And so, you know, um, I asked this, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've sat a number of retreats, as you know, mm -hmm. um, but like, I, I'm always kind of curious about this because my answer, I think, changes all the time. Like, why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think retreat's actually a terrible name for it. At least what we do here does not feel like a retreat. <laughs> retreat gives the impression that it's relaxing and comforting and kind of laying down and sort of snoozing. Uh, <laughs> which is the complete opposite of what a retreat here is, at least, and is most good meditation retreats I've been to. Um, I think most of all, it's an opportunity to get really in touch and get closer to what's really real and present in my own experience. Mm -hmm. And it's really rare because in day-to-day -day life, there's always things to do and it's hard to really, uh, I think like Pascal or someone said that like most of life's problems stem from the fact that a person can't sit by themselves in a quiet room and, uh, and so to the degree that I can be silent and still and be present with myself is the degree to which I can like bring that same level of focus and clarity and relaxation to any problem or any uh, person that I meet. And so we sort of strip things down to basics of just me and this experience of sitting. And uh, why is that so hard? You know, <laughs> that should be easy. A dog, a cat, any animal or insect can just sit still. And yet for humans, for some reason, with these minds that we have and programming, uh, it's so hard and causes so many unnecessary problems. Yeah. It's okay. And so, and so, you know, you're a normal person. Mm -hmm. um, you haven't always lived in a monastery, mm -hmm. you know, you used to be a programmer, mm -hmm. right? Just, and living in Boston, you know, very kind of, uh, normal, normal life. <laughs> and this is a, pr quote unquote. yeah, quote unquote. Um, and so you've been here now for going on a little over three years. Mm -hmm. Um, what have you noticed the effect of this training has been for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's interesting because the goalpost always feels like it's moving and day to day, I'm not sure that I see the difference, but definitely month to month, year to year, uh, the differences, there's definitely differences. Um, the biggest thing seems to be that uh, I'm able to be a lot happier in general, mm. uh, which a lot of it comes from not uh, being so scared of certain experiences and also not needing certain experiences. So like I did a solitary retreat earlier this year and one of the biggest insights or letting go was just like realizing, oh, I can be really happy like with very little. As mm. long as I have like a food and like somewhere to sleep, Mm. The there's like this deprogramming that happens of like 30 years of all this biological, social, cultural, family programming. Mm. And the, the, all the meditation helps me like deprogram all of that. And that's so liberating and like 
I can just enjoy being alive and not need much. Mm. And it was such a relief to be like, no matter what happens, I can always come back to just like being happy of being alive and just, you know, I don't need that much. Um, on the other hand, I've taken on a lot. One of the reasons I came was to take on a lot of like learning how to be connected with people and be in like really deep, intimate relationship and also how to take on like leadership and responsibility. And each year has been a growth curve of taking on more and more responsibility, more and more leadership. And, uh, and uh, I think, I think now like, I feel like really comfortable, like managing and running an entire monastery. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would have, I would have run away screaming if someone offered that to me three years ago. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's really cool. And I often joke with the former residents that like, it feels like we're almost like going to war mm. when we're here. And then when we leave, it's like, well, nothing's as bad as the monastery. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Yeah, well, nothing, nothing is as bad, but also nothing is as good. Yeah, I, and I know, and and it, it it feels even strange to say that, but like there's there's a way in which I've noticed that I have never felt as alive as I have when I'm just like forced to encounter my experience, mm-hmm. whether I want to or not, mm-hmm. on a regular basis, mm-hmm. um, and. It's very, it's very counterintuitive. Like I would have, I don't know, like you said, there's so much conditioning around what the purpose of life is, what makes us happy, what makes us sad, that to imagine that you could be more happy doing nothing (laughs) than you could, you know, in my case, um, or, or you know, living in the wealthiest hmm. nation in the world, mm-hmm. uh, having access to tremendous amounts of privilege mm-hmm. and resources and information and uh, experiences. Mm-hmm. What, like, um, I'm curious if that's something that you're seeing in your own life and what that says to you about, I don't know, like, uh, kind of culture and where we're going wrong or how to understand the purpose of life or the, 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 the meaning of life, how to find happiness or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And on one hand, I think this is just like, kind of like a truth 101. I don't think it's limited to the domain of Buddhism or spirituality. Like Ray Dalio, the, like the world's, most successful hedge fund manager says the same thing that like life progress is made by getting a clear and clearer picture on what's true and then making real changes based on feedback of what's true. And I think, you know, I studied a lot of Taoism when I was in college, I was really into Taoism and they, in ancient China, the Taoists had like a real suspicion of civilization and culture and specifically like around the numbing effect of Mm. comfort and civilization that when you live in the wealthiest country in the world where the culture is to never be inconvenient inconvenienced and that there's always an app or some way that you can escape discomfort Mm -hmm. we can sort of buy our way into never feeling the negative sides of life which also dampens our ability to feel the positive sides of life 
And so in the monastery, even when things are hard, it feels really alive. And so a day feels like a month here. Um, <laughs> in both good and bad ways, but I'm alive at least. Whereas when I go back home or I'm in the city, it's so easy to just like spend hours on YouTube or Netflix or even just talking to people totally. and not really be alive in that whole time. And I'm sure everyone had this, that experience. Uh, well, well and, and I think that many people can only remember perhaps as a child the feeling of being truly alive, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, I mean, it's, I, you have, you know, I'll tell you how, how it is now. Mm-hmm. I, you've been in here for three years. So. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> you don't recall that, or it wasn't as bad then, but like the, the, the amount of money that uh, our civilization is currently pouring into making addictive technologies that mm-hmm. are like, you know, I think Tristan Harris says it's like having a supercomputer pointed at your brain mm. who's attempting to kind of play chess against you, whereby winning the chess game means it's distracting you, it's capturing mm-hmm. your attention. Yeah. And it's like, it's profoundly good. Like, you know, after, for myself, after leaving the monastery and having two years of intensive <laughs> contemplative training and like working my concentration muscles, it took me maybe like a year before I was pretty much at the whim of some of these algorithms without like really strongly determining and like setting up boundaries and trying to almost like monasticize my life. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that like so many people don't have any sense of like, they're just kind of coasting on top of this frothy wave of content without yeah. ever. And, and, and I think you're right. Like to point at this uh, sort of the relationship between comfort and truth, perhaps we can put it that way, but like, or, or maybe it's comfort and aliveness. Um, there is this, it seems really profound, uh, miscalculation of the contemporary human being that if I just get comfortable enough, if I just take care of enough of my needs and wants then I will be happy. And I remember one of the things that Soryu said mm-hmm. um, uh, when, I, when I was training here, Soryu is the founder of this monastery mm-hmm. and like the kind of uh, visionary behind it. Uh, he said that um, getting what you want <laughs> is actually a form of slavery. Mm-hmm. Right. And I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, nah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, not what I want. What I yeah. want is actually good right <laughs> but but it yeah i mean it's, that's such a, 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 a what is it radical thing to say in our world yeah. right now I, I totally remember him talking one time about that and it was like he didn't use this analogy i don't think but it's to me it's like an alcoholic that's like oh i just need a drink i need a drink mm. but getting the drink just temporarily satisfies the addiction the actual thing that we want is to get rid of the addiction mm. And so the desires we have, we think that getting the thing that we want is actually the good thing, but it's actually just that we're not wanting it anymore is the good side. Um, But this connection you said about convenience and aliveness, a recent example, I remember when I did the circling retreat in October, you know, circling is this authentic relating practice where we get really intimate and deep. And so we'd have these periods where we're doing circling. And then there's these other periods where we're just like kind of chit-chatting. And there's like this quality where the chit chat doesn't feel as good as the circling because it's mm. more like superficial or something. And I remember I was sitting with a bunch of people and I said, 
what if we just like just named any time the conversation started being boring? Because normally in group、mm. conversations I'm in, it kind of goes to the lowest denominator of comfort of what's safe for everyone, and that's boring and it's not alive and it means we're catering、mm. towards everyone's comfort rather than it's actually perceived comfort because most people are actually bored by chit chat.、Um, We're always projecting and calculating. So,、um, what if we like optimize for like aliveness and like goodness rather than comfort and convenience?、Um, yeah. Yeah, and so the circling piece is another、um, interesting facet, I think, of your time here. You know, one of the things that you've brought to this community is circling, and circling is, as you said, a form of authentic relating. Practice, which you know you may or may not be familiar with, here talking to the listener,、um, maybe give a very quick synopsis of like what circling is, and then we'll go on from there. Yeah, it's interesting because circling doesn't really have like a like a governing body, so it looks differently. It looks different in a lot of places, but the general gist, the way I sort of introduce it, is it's interpersonal meditation practice. Where we're being mindful and being present with whatever is really here right now, in relationship with other people, and that there is a almost sixth sense of relationship that we can cultivate, of like what it feels like, what it tastes like, what it looks like being in a relationship with someone,、mm-hmm. and actually make that a meditation object, and kind of expand our sense of self to. These days, they call it a we space,、mm-hmm. where we can actually feel and、uh, relate to what it means to be in relationship. And one of the things that I'm really re- interested in is taking circling as an awakening practice,、mm. as a vehicle for spiritual development. Because a lot of places they kind of just use it for like psychological development、mm. or happiness or something. And I'm really interested in the spiritual side of it as well. And so,、uh, can you are you willing to demonstrate like what the kind of way of speaking or conversating that circling we can do it together? Yeah, just a little bit.、Um, sure.、Uh, so, like on the most basic level, it's like、uh, a making sure I'm in contact with you. I'm noticing like I've been like trying to form my words, so I'm not making as much eye contact.、Mm. Uh, the second level is like. Staying tuned in with like how I'm feeling on like a embodied level, noticing what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling,、uh, while also putting in my attention、uh, you in my attention as well in my experience, and then naming what's here,、uh, what's the context we're in, what's the、uh, what's arising moment to moment. And not needing to identify or、uh, judge、uh, what's arising, but just sort of like co-creating the space、yeah. and、uh, taking as a meditation of、uh, normally an interaction. I think we. So even now, I'm noticing I'm like doing a lot of presenting,、mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel as much uh, uh, being present with the experience as much. Yeah.、Uh, so I'm like naming that. Pattern of like wanting to、uh, easier to talk about it than to do it, right? And even that is a doorway in 
to it, right? So like, yeah. I notice that when you mentioned that, like I felt a little bit more connected and I, I, you know, I'm aware in my own body of like kind of a feeling of nervousness in my stomach, mm-hmm. um, which is also, I think I can see it as excitement. Mm-hmm. So it goes back and forth a little bit mm-hmm. and I have like a, like chattering, like, oh, I want this to be fun for you and interesting to listen to. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's kind of like creating that nervous excitement a little bit. Yeah. And then hearing that the impact is like, oh, I'm feeling the same way. And so it feels nice <laughs> to be on the same page. Yeah. And I yeah. Need to kind of feel some relief. Uh, yeah. In that connection. Uh, and then there's like this silent period where I just want to soak in the goodness of feeling that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And then like a weird, I'm noticing like, the, the tension I was also feeling in my stomach is like shifting more into like a flow. Yeah. Uh, Me too. Yeah. I can feel it more in my limbs now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird like synchronicity that happens also when I do these kinds of practices where it starts getting confusing like what's my experience and what's mm-hmm. the group experience or something. Uh, and that gets me really excited about what that means. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's something that I think I'm curious about to hear from you is so uh, you're do you're you're out here in the mountains of Vermont yeah. and y'all are meditating a whole lot and <laughs> hopefully clarifying your perception and and. Yeah. Uh, dropping some of the constructed boundaries of like self and other and your own Mm -hmm. self-identity and you know getting acquainted with emptiness and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff and then on top of that you're doing this relational practice Mm -hmm. which you know we just gave a little bit of a taste of it but folks on the have been on the show previously you know talk about these kinds of practices these we space practices Mm -hmm. these collective presencing practices and I guess I'm, I'm curious what you think happens when you combine intensive meditation practice. Um, inte- well, so three things, intensive meditation practice, mm-hmm. um, uh, living in community, right? Mm-hmm. So you're doing it with the same people mm-hmm. every week and then you do an intensive once a year or whatever it is, but mm-hmm. you're presumably also using it together even outside of the context of the totally. formal practice. Um, and then, and then sort the circling technology kind of layered on top of that. Like what, what's the difference between doing that and just like going to a one-off event? Right. Um, the different, one of the differences to me is like the change is in some hands harder, but also more permanent and profound. There's a way in which I even remember when I was in Boston, I was doing similar types of practices, not it wasn't circling or authentic relating, but there were other technologies, social technologies. But there was a way in which like if I felt uncomfortable with the group, I just want to go the next week. I might not go for the next month. And it's like anytime something started really touching on something, I had the choice of ejecting. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in a community like this, and it's probably the reason I joined was like, there's already the commitment of I'm going to stick it through whatever it is. 
And so when we hit the challenges and really see our, like our blind spots, uh, online it's harder to change because like the repercussions of like, I'm going to see you tomorrow and you, I'm still working with you. I'm still living with you. Uh, is huge. It feels huge. Uh, at least feels huge. And then, but if I can actually make that change, it's like permanent because it's like at the same intimacy level as like a romantic partner or like a family member. Right. Uh, so that's really, really powerful and really rare. I mean, I think totally. uh, I lived with probably like dozens of roommates up until living at the monastery. Totally. Yeah. And the general trend was when everything's got really hard, the, the group house or whatever just implode and people would eject and go elsewhere. Right. And there's a lot of suffering around, I think. Uh, all of us carry like certain patterns and when we, we're challenged and we don't feel safe to really examine them and change them, we just replay those patterns our entire life. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but at least for me in the monastery is a place where we break those patterns and like become free yeah. to explore other options. Yeah. Well, and I noticed too um, that... So and, and that that speaks, I think, more to the effect of combining this living in, in deep community mm-hmm. with circling. Mm-hmm. And then there's also this aspect the of the meditation, right? And totally. like so you know, what came to my mind as you were speaking is like there's a way in which we can break these patterns in our own experience. Mm-hmm. But then as soon as I <laughs> As soon as I try to go talk to somebody, right. I'm like four years old, or I'm eight years old again, totally. you know, and I can't um, connect with them. Totally. And so, I, I, again, I'm curious, like, what, what is happening? What have you noticed combining right. those two technologies? Yeah, for me, like, one definition of meditation is just, like, being able to put attention on something in the present moment, uh, whether it's, like, an emotion or breath or a chant or something. And so I think there's, like, this advantage hypothesis that meditators make really good circlers because they're really good at uh, moving and changing their attention even on things that are really hard to stay with Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's this natural feedback loop between meditation and circling or just authentically relating in that i can be with whatever experience even if it's like nervousness or fear being with someone and without reacting to it, I can just name it and see it. Um, and then, like you said, I think the great liberating point about circling is that I can also use other people as a source of a mirror for the things that I can't necessarily see because they're in my blind spot and also break the patterning that mm-hmm. I have in relationship um, that might feel too scary to do with other people where the container is not there and we normally have like biological content battles mm-hmm. and here in the practice we're more interested in like how we're relating versus like what we're relating about um, so for me it's been really powerful and like transformative uh, really I should thank you because I think you were the one originally that uh, continually asked me to bring this practice to the monastery when I was initially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. somewhat reluctant <laughs> yeah well i and i, I guess I'm, I'm you know so i i left two years ago and since then circling has really become a force within this community yeah and i i guess uh what 
what has that done to, again, and the reason why this, I'm so curious about this is because for me, what I've seen typically is circling and authentic relating practices get offered as kind of like classes or mm-hmm. weekly gatherings and people kind of come in from their separate lives mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, practice intimacy right. for an hour and a half, two hours, and then they go back to their lives. Hopefully they use those skills again, but, you know, they may or may not. Right. Um, but here uh, you've created a community where already without circling, it's yeah. a much more profound experience of community and like uh, inescapability, you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, which is, I think, part of what can, what creates totally. a community um, than most people have ever experienced. But then on top of that, you're layering circling. So what has, um, you know, you might not notice it now because if you came in, you would take it for granted. But like you've seen it since you introduced circling into this environment, like what has it, how has it transformed the texture of the community? Right. Well, one thing I remember was that last year we did our first circling week-long retreat. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because it was a really hard time for the group in general. We just moved to this low property that we purchased and it was a really challenging time for the group. It was also when Soryu was uh, away doing his own training and typically when Soryu is away, the group kind of leans on him and so it's hard for the group when he's away. Mm-hmm. But what was amazing to me was during that retreat, each of us really kind of broke down and broke through uh, both within ourselves and with each other. And it created this intense amount of trust and mm. uh, intimacy and group cohesion. Um, I think in psychology terms, they call it like psychological safety or something. That's usually the key, uh, most important trait for a successful team. And so after that retreat, all of us were at a whole new level of trust and bonding that wasn't based on the fact that we all thought the same thing or believed the same thing or liked the same thing, Mm. but that we had explored like the hardest parts of ourselves with each other and uh, in a way that's hard to do with almost anyone except we usually reserve that in western culture with only romantic partners or mentors or something or therapists right Uh, and here we had a group a team that was able and willing to go there together and with that level of trust now we can actually enter like disagreements and um, make decisions and do Mm. collective decision-making and um, projects with the level of like uh, not being at war with each other, but like sharing this ground of uh, I trust you, I feel safe with you because uh, we, we've already practiced that. We've already entered that zone before. Hmm. And so day to day, not to mention we just the languaging and the practices are used in day to day culture and we learn to distinguish like between our thoughts and feelings and what we imagine the other person's thinking versus what they're actually thinking and checking our assumptions and yeah. all those things are really useful too. Yeah. And, and speaking as somebody coming in, you know, a little bit from the outside, uh, I came here a year ago, almost exactly for a week long retreat, mm-hmm. which if you're listening and you want to do a really intense retreat, highly recommend yeah. uh, this place. Um, uh, but coming in from the outside, like, I don't know if I've ever experienced a community 
that seems as transparent and connected mm-hmm. and, and like trusting is my sense. Like, mm-hmm. and there's no like clicks. There's no, it doesn't seem like there's any kind of, uh, it just seems like really healthy, a really healthy group. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, in, in seeing that it reveals to me how unhealthy many groups that I've <laughs> seen and been a part of right. are. And I, I don't know that I ever, I have a few other places that I can compare it to in my mind, but it's rare in our world today, I think. Yeah. I think both in meditation and in circling, the, the question that I'm always holding is sort of like, is, it, is this moment of like who I am, what life is showing up as in this interview right now, are things just like, okay, or do I need to be doing something to prevent some catastrophe from hitting me at every moment and in meditation we really face that within ourselves yeah of like if i just if i'm just here is it okay or not yeah is the ground of being trustworthy and safe or is it constant danger and the same thing of circling where like we go into relationships and it's like do i always have to perform and like win attention or can i just be wherever i am right now and that's okay. And I think in a lot of groups, the modus, like the default operating system is we want everyone to feel comfortable because if you're not comfortable, you're not safe. Right. Um, which actually limits the <laughs> potential of what's allowed to be expressed. Right. It's actually um, not that satisfying. And so here, people still disagree with each other a lot. There's a lot of... Uh, you know, grudges and like things that can happen, but it's okay. It's like, we don't, it's not, we don't identify as like, that's who you are uh, or that's what, how it's always going to be. And so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I, one of the things I've noticed just in the past, like 30 hours of being here is yeah. um, how f- much feistier people are here than like most meditation centers where everybody is like, just kind of quiet and, and kind of, uh, simply kind, you know, yeah. there's a willingness, I think, to be like very, to disagree very strongly mm-hmm. to like, you know, kind of just speak out on behalf of whatever it is that's going totally. on for you. It's, uh, has a very different texture than like, say a Goenka center. If yeah. Spend time there or something like that. There are benefits to, I think both approaches, but I, I think our way is probably better <clears throat> in some way. And I think it's different than when I first joined the monastery over three years ago, I think there was a sense of like, there were still a lot of similar challenges, but we didn't really have that. I, I, at least I didn't feel maybe because I was new, I didn't feel the same level of like safety and trust to go into these kinds of things with other people. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there is this assumption perhaps uh, that I have needed to deconstruct and dissuade myself from that. Like, The victories won in my my seated meditation practice, mm-hmm. like my ability to allow life to be as it is mm-hmm. in that context, will kind of spill over necessarily right. into my relational life right. or into my work life right. or into whatever sphere of life isn't seated meditation. Totally. And it doesn't seem like that's the case. And so the difference between two years ago and now is that like, yeah. 
you know, I think there was a degree to which everybody wanted that safety, mm-hmm. but you're doing the practice that actually proves to our nervous systems that that safety is here. And then you can kind of like, huh, right. take off the armor and yeah. express yourself. Totally. Yeah. I know like Shenzhen Yang is sort of like one of our godfathers, I suppose, of meditation. And we use his uh, system that he made with Soryu and other people. And he talks about this like concentration, clarity, equanimity development as mindfulness. But he also talks about like challenge sequences. Like we start with seated meditation, then we go into moving, then we go into talking, then we go into like doing chores and mm-hmm. uh, like deep interpersonal relationships, probably like one of the farthest ends of challenge totally. sequence. Totally. <laughs> it's like when our self is most, our, our sense of self and like protecting ourselves is like most activated yeah uh, so it's nice to dissolve that right. cool and so um yeah i mean all the, all this to say like i think personally what what is happening here is really beautiful and on the cutting edge of spiritual communities because it's also a post-traditional mm-hmm setting and that just means that you're not like beholden to the dogma of a particular mm-hmm. lineage or um totally. you know so it's not even though soryu was trained in a zen monastery mm-hmm. you know this is that we the, the, you pull from you know you do vision quests you pull from native traditions you mm-hmm. pull from all the different buddhist traditions you do whatever works like last right. last retreat right you had a right. uh, you call it your neuro neuromodulation neuromodulation retreat which uh was a tcds retreat Mm -hmm. which basically you had a you had a doctor come for the seven week or seven day silent retreat and and zap your brain with electricity to make you meditate better (laughs) right well stimulate (laughs) testing the hypothesis so you brought these transcranial dr baron short uh developed these uh transcranial direct current stimulation uh, devices that have been used for decades for treating uh, different medical issues. But now he's exploring, could these devices also help stimulate parts of the brain to enhance mindfulness? And so he brought several of his devices that are still getting prototyped. And we ran a week-long retreat with Shenzhen where many people signed up to get stimmed. got stimmed. (laughs) And... um, yeah, and that was, like you said, uh, uh, I think your podcast has a lot of stuff on metamodernism. You turned me on to it earlier this year. Yeah. So I've been thinking more and more of how this place fits uh, a metamodern context in that we're very sincere and we take, we'll, we'll, we take on faith that the traditions that lasted thousands of years have some gold there, that they know what they're doing, but that there's probably other stuff that isn't either doesn't fit the times or the context mm. or the people. And we want to find the pieces that really work. Um, but we're not just going to say we're going to start over and build our own thing. And we're also not beholden to mm. tradition saying, well, you're absolutely right. And we can't change a thing being a literalist. Uh, and so there's both the sincerity of like really appreciating what have come before us and also recognizing that it's a constant evolution. What came before was an evolution from previous things, so uh, yeah, yeah. What, what that um, what comes to mind is this other uh, gentleman who I interviewed recently, James Sirwillow, wrote this book, Meta Modern Leadership, and mm. the uh, 
the symbol of metamodernism that he came up with and put on the cover is uh, Janus, you know, the, the two-faced God, yeah. oh, who's yeah. both looking backwards in time right. as well as forward into the future. Totally. And kind of like sitting in that center point totally. and trying to make sense of it. Um, and I think maybe that's a good transition point. You know, one of the other things that you and I spend time talking about mm -hmm. and um, wondering about is, uh, let's, let's use the slightly uh, deep, not so scary term of existential risk. <laughs> right. Um, and specifically, you know, you, I shared this paper with you that was shared with me by somebody who listens to the show. Mm -hmm. um, I think the name of the paper is deep adaptation mm -hmm. and I will um, put in the show notes, but uh, you know, what's the, and, and, and this paper, just to put it very quickly, kind of like uh, the purpose of the paper is to prepare the reader to kind of deal with or encounter what the author says uh, is inevitable near-term social collapse, mm -hmm. systems collapse. Yeah. Um, and so uh, what's the relevance and relationship between uh, this, I would say, very, 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 very highly real and likely possibility of some form of collapse within mm -hmm. our society and within our civilization mm -hmm. and the work you're doing here. Yeah, well, it's interesting that uh, Soryu, who again is the founder, like at a very young age had that sort of foresight realization and basically dedicated the rest of his life to the idea that human beings are destroying the planet mm. and we need to do something about it. Uh, and I know for a long time I resisted that message because I just wanted to work on myself and uh, I, I didn't want to think about that. Um, in the very name of the organization, Monastic Academy for the Preservation of Life on Earth, is baked in that our top level, top level vow and mission is to address that question. Uh, and it's interesting that these existential risks, all of them that we're facing, like nuclear war and global warming, are by and large, well, some people would dispute this, by and large human-made. <laughs> we're the ones creating the conditions for destroying life on the planet. Uh, and it's interesting that all the surveys of modern culture show that we're actually not very happy the suicide, I just read a paper recently that said the suicide rate has jumped significantly uh, in the United States at least. So The leading cause of death for men in our demographic. Yeah. Or maybe it's that or opioid, which I don't know if there's much of a distinction between. It's definitely top five or something like yeah. that. And yeah. uh, so it's strange that we're destroying life, including ourselves. And uh, what's going on there? Like, that's so strange. And, <laughs> and so the training that we do here, on one hand, is finding better conditioned forms of happiness and ideally unconditional forms of happiness that actually give us happiness. Mm -hmm. It's funny that a lot of people chase after things kind of like candy instead of real food. Uh, hoping to get connection or happiness, but really it's just a poor substitute that doesn't really nourish us. 
But there's no better role model. And uh, so, on one hand, it's doing this training, doing this work, doing the meditation, circling, actually doing service, having a community where everyone actually cares, uh, gives us a source of happiness, belonging, joy. Uh, it doesn't rely on what advertising says gives us happiness, like a mm -hmm. new car or a lot of Facebook likes or something, which actually don't give us lasting joy. Um, and then the other side of the training is learning how do we then bring that uh, to the world? How do we change systems? How do we address the problems in a skillful way? Because uh, there's been a lot of people in the past who have noticed problems that humans are making mm -hmm. and then end up creating maybe even worse mm -hmm. problems. Mm -hmm. uh, right. So we don't want to do that either. Um, it's interesting. I was thinking earlier, like, you're talking about, like, the, the systems that are trying to control attention and how that's now a commodity. Mm -hmm. And... Most systems, because there's no real person behind them, are just made for their own betterment. But in a community, a monastery like this, we actually the goal is actually caring about each person in the community. And so the system is designed to care for each person's real growth and happiness uh, and service. Whereas in most systems, like a Facebook or Gmail or corporate jobs uh, don't care about that. <laughs> so it makes sense that uh, it's not working. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the, we talked about this in the, in the drive out here mm -hmm. is uh, one of the thinkers who's been, I haven't yet had on the show, but is very much uh, a part of the kind of uh, uh, movement of thought that I've been exploring on Emerge is Daniel Schmachtenberger. And oh, he yeah. has this idea of uh, win-lose versus omni-win mm -hmm. in terms of game dynamics, mm -hmm. right? A, a win-lose game is, you know, the game that we see being played right. uh, all over the world right. in which somebody wins, somebody loses, um, and there's kind of competitive advantage, right? And as Daniel Schmachtenberger is famous for saying, and I'm paraphrasing, like, win-lose game dynamics with exponential technology on a finite mm -hmm. playing field is inevitably self-terminating. Right. Right. No, no, no way that's not self-terminating. Right. Um, and so his proposal, like what we need to shift to, is what he calls an omni-win civilization. Right. Uh, in which, you know, we only, we, the, the, uh, the, uh, incentives and of the agent, the actions and behaviors of an agent, are aligned with the what benefits every agent in the system. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, there's a way in which there is a, a sense of that here, mm -hmm. you know, at the monastery, whereby you have this really deeply embedded sense that we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. That like we can't, I cannot be successful at the expense of you, right? And that indeed, like our salvation, our liberation, our our happiness, our um, success mm. is all bound up inextricably together. 
Totally. Which, you know, is this kind of piece around like inescapability, right. which is terrifying. Right. right? Very terrifying. <laughs> but it's extremely satisfying. Yeah. Uh, and, and beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And so many cans of worms just opened up in my head. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I really like that guy. Um, he also says something like with these godlike powers of these exponential technologies, mm -hmm. we need the similar godlike wisdom and love. Yeah. Just funny because we talk about here training wisdom, love, and power makes us trustworthy. Mm -hmm. And so part of it's like, how do we make, if power corrupts, how do we create a liberating power that uh, having power actually liberates people? Mm. Um, and that's the training that we do here where people get power and especially for those loving types that don't want to inconvenience others. <laughs> it's a real challenge of holding power in a wise and loving way, but still holding the discipline. Um, oh, so many cans of thoughts opened up and I already forgot what they were. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, one thing I think that um, has become uh, more, that I believe more than I used to since leaving the monastery and, and kind of having the conversations I've had on the podcast mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, you, you said, uh, how, one, one of the parts of the training is like, how do we create systems that actually improve the world or, or help make the world not horrible and mm -hmm. self-terminating? Right. Um, and, uh, and, and I think the first thing in that inquiry is like, stop, mm -hmm. like stop right. creating things, like right. ho hold back on the momentum of our right. civilization, right? Like right. step out of that right. as completely as you can. And that for me is like one of the affordances of the meditation practice is like, you don't know all the ways in which you're building the world right. until you actually like attempt to stop, right. uh, attempt to stop as a kind of. Totally. Uh, you know, kind of a, a paradox, but nonetheless, like that seems like what happens. And then out of that space of not creating, right. you could actually, that's the only uh, mind that is capable of moving forward in a different way. That's not mm -hmm. kind of uh, just a symptom of this, this world that, that is right. so problematic. Yeah. I just remember what I was thinking about. It touches directly on this. Perfect. Um, this win-lose dynamic of, uh, you know, a lot of people are unhappy and suffering, which is, which we can see through all the mental health illness and pharmacology and everything. And none of the systems really seem to care. You know, they're not really, in the end, academia, corporations, uh, Businesses are not designed with the person's welfare as the number one priority. Uh, and those are the systems that have all the control right now. And so the question is here is like, if we find a better sources of joy that actually lead to contentment and not needing more, then we don't need to participate in constantly striving to get more stuff. Mm. And we can actually then care about other people Right. One of the big learnings I had when I before I came here was I worked at a suicide, I volunteered at a suicide hotline, mm. 
and I was working, I was really involved in a lot of Dharma communities, and it, it, it struck me that the more suffering someone has, it seems like the less capable they are of caring about other people. Mm. Their suffering is so great, they're just worried about themselves. And so to the degree that someone's like liberating themselves, the more they can care about creating win-win dynamics, because they're not needing to win anymore. They've gotten what they needed, and the win is now helping other people win right. of having enough. Um, and it reminds me of my graduate degree. I, I studied like existential philosophy of Sartre and Buddhism. And Sartre talked about an existentialism, talks about how everyone's free to create their own story. Existence precedes essence. This might get no philosophical, but I think that's your podcast category. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so he talked about how everyone's free, but later in his life he went into ethics and he himself worked on a lot of... Uh, social justice causes in his life. And the question I had is, if we're all free, why should I necessarily care about anyone else's freedom? Mm. He sort of had this assumption. And actually this morning, I was actually just thinking, uh, not just why should I care about anyone else's life or freedom or happiness, but why should I care about other animals and the planet? Mm. And I think for a lot of people, the prevailing culture is either I should care, but I don't, or I just, there, you don't need to care. Um, but really, when I, when I like examining that question, it's like, it's like Buddhism 101 of like, my existence is intricately tied with everything else to the mm -hmm. point where, where I start and where other people start or where the world starts isn't, uh, clear and so the survival of the planet is directly connected to my own survival right but i think that's an experience we can have in meditation we can have that relationally and circling uh, and when people really experience that it's like oh right i should work and it's more enjoyable i use a metaphor about when people start meditation they don't really understand emptiness and self and to them, awakening seems like I'm losing myself and that's the last thing I want. Mm. And I use the metaphor of like, imagine the times you're most happy and joyous. Like you're listening to a good song or you're dancing or you're playing music. Uh, you're having really good conversation. You're like programming and you're in your flow states or something. Those are the times where the sense of self is like the most loose and thin mm -hmm. to the point of almost not existing. And the places where I'm the most, the times I'm most scared or worried or suffering are when my sense of self is the most contracted mm -hmm. and intense mm -hmm. to the point where I can't see or hear or think about anything else. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a community like this and the practices that we do are designed to like uh, be able to access those states of uh, non-self that are actually really good that I think everyone has those experiences that we just don't pay attention to them because there's less self there. So we're not going to pay attention to them. We only remember them back in, in hindsight, mm -hmm. uh, but we have to actually remember them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, something that uh, came to me as you were speaking was um, again, the Daniel Schmachtenberger, uh, the, the, the omni-win versus the win-lose, it's like just, I think game dynamics are a really fascinating way to look at our civilization. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And it's like, if the game that we're playing together is get all the things <laughs> right. that we think we need right. in order to be happy, right. and it's a plant, and we're not doing it on a, on a like limited playing field. Like there's like only so many trees, only so much metal on the planet, totally. only so much, you know, whatever money mm-hmm. too. Um, then like very obviously it's like not very like abstract to see that that just doesn't yeah. work out. You know, yeah. it's just very clearly doomed kind of, uh, and, and yet then what you're suggesting and what I heard from you is this different game, right? So that, that is inherently a win lose game. Mm-hmm. Um, what you're suggesting is a different game, which is um, the game of how can I be happy regardless of circumstances, right? Whatever the circumstances are, is there a happiness there? Yeah, that's the ideal case. That that's and that's a pretty well in high in bar. both in both cases, yeah. right? If I, if my game is that I get as much stuff as possible, I'm never mm-hmm. I'm almost certainly not going to be. Bill Gates. Totally. I'm, but I'm still going to play towards that game. I'm still right. going to move in the, towards that attractor of getting all the things I need to be happy and getting all the security I need. Right. But you're su- suggesting a different attractor point, which is like, be happy regardless of circumstances, uh, which which does seem like obviously a game that everybody could win. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I think there, there's like unconditional happiness, unconditional being able to be an experience without needing to freak out. And I also think for a lot of us, just learning to appreciate our conditioned existence is that most of us live pretty decent lives and are still miserable. I know plenty of people who like hit their career goals or are in a good relationship, live in a great house and are still miserable. And it's like, even, even as a first step, it's like learning how do I enjoy the conditioned happiness I actually do have. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, it's like, why do I keep looking at the bad things even when my life is really good? Um, at least by all the normal standards of what good is supposed to be. Um, yeah. But yeah, definitely the unconditional freedom and happiness uh, is a game that we can definitely all win. Um, yeah, and then more of us who are quote unquote winning that game the easier it is for others to win i think that's one of the things about this community is actually you know you see that uh your meditation is enhanced Mm -hmm. for instance your your the the uh, ability of yourself to liberate yourself Mm -hmm. is enhanced is increased is amplified Mm -hmm. by virtue of being in a community where everybody's up to the same game totally yeah yeah and i think a lot of it's also just like for me there are a few role models growing up and in my 20s who had done this kind of training and I was like I want to be like them and all of them had done this kind of training and it was only because I knew them that I thought it was even possible to have the kind of happiness and service and integrity that they had yeah and then when I looked at their biography all of them had done some deep spiritual training of some sort so I think just more people who play this game can then role model to other people that, yeah, there's this other way that works better, <laughs> costs less, uh, it's a way more fun. <laughs> uh, and so I, I hope there's a cascading kind of exponential tide that turns as more people can demonstrate this to their family yeah. and friends. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and, and I think as as the recognition that the fundamental unsustainability of our civilization goes right. up in the collective consciousness, like people will look for alternative yeah. uh, uh, approaches to life. And so um, hopefully, yeah, hopefully more and more people will do this. And um, so if it, I guess there's, I would love for you to talk a little bit about like how um, people could, so first I would like you to talk about if you're listening and this sounds like something that you would like to experience yourself. Mm -hmm. What are the options there? Right. Yeah. So there's a lot, a lot of different levels. Um, obviously, we share a lot of like content. Not so obviously, we share a lot of content like on our YouTube page. So if you just want to know more about us and from your computer, you can just search Center for Mindful Learning or Monastic Academy. There's a lot of stuff on the internet. Uh, but the best thing would be coming here, physically coming here, experiencing the community viscerally firsthand on an embodied level. There's something that just changes for people in the first hour just stepping in the door that I don't know how to explain through words, but that is feeling that community and feeling the care, feeling the level of presence, commitment, that just the surrounding beauty of the woods and nature, the silence and stillness, the liveness, uh, Awake something up in people that is really valuable. Uh, it's hard to quantify. So people can come for, as a guest, either practice on our schedule, uh, do co-working if they have remote work. You can come for different programs like retreats or circling. Um, we lead a community sit in Burlington uh, every Sunday night. Uh, and then we have this California location that's just emerging this past summer we started. Uh, out in the San Francisco Bay Area, there's three of the residents uh, over there. So anyone that's in the West Coast could visit them. I am um, personally, to put a personal plug, I'm starting coaching services online. So I'm taking a few select clients to uh, work with one-on-one. -on -one. And, uh, and every once in a while, we tour around to find people. Uh, and we're also always looking for people that want to live and work here. So we have an apprenticeship program uh, that we're expanding probably year-round in 2019. So people could probably join uh, different periods throughout the year. The, each season will probably have an apprenticeship program where you can come for free, get room and board, get really high-class training, live in the community, uh, practice for two or three months, and... Uh, really good, valuable training. And we're also always looking for long-term uh, residents who can commit to being here for uh, a year or longer and uh, basically run the center, uh, more or less. And of course, uh, anyone that wants to support us in any way, financially, socially, culturally, or partner with us, we're always open to talking and uh, we could always use more attention uh, capital. So, uh, in this war of attention, hopefully we, the good things get more attention. Uh, <laughs> uh, so those are some ways. Um, yeah, they can also always email me if they just want to chat. I'm happy to talk to people and talking to people about this kind of stuff is like my favorite thing to do in the world. So. Nice. And actually one, one other question I had is, is how old are you? <laughs> I am 32. Okay, yeah. cool. So like... Um, I, I will say, this is a plug, like for my, the people I know that listen to my podcast, 
there's a lot of you or a number of you who are mid twenties, mm-hmm. early thirties, mm-hmm. who are maybe by virtue of listening to the conversations I have on this podcast, yeah. looking out at the world and being like, Oh damn, like mm-hmm. I don't want to do what I was trained to do mm-hmm. as a child. I don't want to, you know, walk down the path that our culture is telling me to walk down. Um, what do I do? And I, I've, people have reached out to me for whom this is causing a kind of existential crisis, mm-hmm. which um, isn't fun to experience, but actually from my perspective means that you are uh, looking the world as it is in the eyes, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah. And from my perspective, you know, all of the things that I have seen in the world, all the people that I've met, all the kind of uh, communities I've been exposed to, this is a very unique opportunity because it allows you to practice a completely different way of being that as if you've been listening to the show, you know, for, for various reasons is a kind of like prerequisite to build the more beautiful world. Our hearts tell us is possible. Like if you can't do what, if you, you know, as he's, as, as Peter said, like if you can't sit still by yourself and be happy, you're not going to be able to build something different. And you're probably not going to be able to participate in the emergence of something truly different. Um, and so like for many different reasons, like I, I just personally cannot recommend this place and this training uh, enough. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I'm also just like Peter, happy to talk about my experience training here. Uh, if, if somebody's listening and wants to know more. Yeah. My sense is there's a lot of uh, metrics people use to judge things and our society doesn't have metrics doesn't have very good metrics for the things that people get here we can say things like love and compassion and focus but it's not really a societal understood mm-hmm. metric mm-hmm. but the metrics that people get here the, the values and the training the skills that they learn here uh, are incredible and I imagine in the next few decades people are going to make those metrics and start judging calculating where are the places that you get this kind of skills. Yeah. And this, I, I like to frame this place as like astronaut training or like Olympic training in these areas of like service, leadership, personal growth, spirituality, awakening, happiness, mastery, uh, that it's, as far as I've seen, I have not found anywhere else that comes close to that. Um, if was listening, I'd love if someone made, came here and made those metrics too. You know? <laughs> I've been trying to figure it out myself. But, right. yeah. uh, great. Well, anything, anything that you want to add before we close this conversation? No, I really enjoyed your podcast. And personally, I want to thank you because part of the reason I joined the monastery, which I think I told you three years ago, was really to work with you. Mm. And so uh, it's been really nice to uh, stay connected with you and learn from you and see the success you've had of your podcast. And it's definitely impacted me, uh, in many ways and helped broaden my horizons. And, uh, I hope more people listen and, uh, benefit just like I have. Thank you, Peter. Yeah.